Hello and welcome. I imagine that when you're discussing Dungeons and Dragons with a friend, colleague, or distant family relation, perhaps a second cousin or an aunt, that one of you will have said, I wish there was a podcast where an English guy from a small market town in Hertfordshire talks about Dungeons and Dragons for about half an hour. Well, your wish spell has been answered. My name's TJ. This is D&D Arcana. Welcome to D&D Arcana. Uh, my name's TJ and I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for a long time. Uh, my dad bought my first basic set back in the early 80s and I was immediately hooked. I'm a dungeon master for a campaign set in the Sword Coast and I play an arcane trickster in a friend's homebrew world. I like to talk about both these campaigns, about DMing and about D&D in general, so I hit upon the happy idea of talking to a microphone. I'd love it if someone out there, maybe even your good self, found these shows interesting, or dare I say it, enjoyable. But that's enough of this introduction. Let's try this. The town's guards scatter across the muddy square as the giant spiders rush from the shadows. The villagers run as fast as they can towards the glowing light coming from the open doors of the Stonehill Inn. The adventurers gather together to meet the onslaught. A bugbear wielding a longsword in both hands jumps from the roof of a nearby dwelling surveying the area. The spiders have the guard occupied, so he turns his attention to our heroes. Toblin, the proprietor of the inn, slams the door behind him as the last of the villagers reach the sanctuary within. Not hesitating for a moment, Rogar, the party's dragonborn, raises his shield, tests the weight of his blade, and rushes at the bugbear, exclaiming, This is where you die! Waving his hand in an intricate display, he places his patron's hex on the bugbear and then brings his katana down on the beast in a wide arc, the blade cutting deep into... Um, I'm not sure you can do that. Okay, this is something that happened in the game that I'm currently running in the Sword Coast. Um, this is a campaign I've been running for about a year now and uh, this was the point where the party is defending the town of Phandalin against a giant spider attack orchestrated by the Black Spider. Rogar, the party's dragonborn, is part paladin, part warlock, uh, which makes him a spellcasting nightmare. Um, but more on that later. The issue here is one of having a free hand in order to be able to spellcast. And what this brings up is all the rules um, associated with the spell components of individual spells. And that's what I'd like to talk about just briefly now. Um, first of all, let's have an overview of the spellcasting components. All spells are defined as having a combination of three components, verbal, somatic and material. A spell can have one, two or three of these. The verbal components of a spell are simply the words that you might have to speak in order to cast the spell. Um, we won't be talking about those now because what we're concerned with is all about having a free hand for those somatic and material components of a spell. Somatic components are the gesticulations, the hand movements associated with casting a spell. So think about Doctor Strange waving his arms around in order to cast. Um, the material components are a little bit more complicated. So those of you who are familiar with Critical Role will know all about Caleb reaching into his pouch of materials to get his bat guano out to cast Fireball. That is a material component. Let's think also about, you know, a spell like Bless, where uh, it's the holy water, a little sprinkling of holy water. That is a material component. 
And again, in order to cast a spell with a material component, you need to have a free hand. It becomes a little bit more complicated than that, though, because we could bring into play something called an arcane focus. So an arcane focus can replace the mundane material components that would normally be associated with a spell. Um, an arcane focus is just something you grab to get your, your arcane energy from. It's a largely narrative thing, uh, so it'll be different for different characters. It might be, I don't know, a gemstone containing your father's soul or a, a petrified dragon egg you found deep in a dungeon somewhere or something. Uh, it could be a gingerbread cookie uh, baked at 200 degrees for 20 minutes. Uh, but remember to leave that one to cool before you use it. Basically, you can use your arcane focus instead of using the mundane components. But again, you still need to be able to hold on to it. So you still need a free hand for that. What do I mean by mundane material components? This is where it starts to get a little bit uh, confusing. Let's say you're casting the sleep spell. A sleep spell has a material component of rose petals and it's just listed there in the rules as rose petals. And so you can just grab that from your material component pouch or you can grab hold of your arcane focus. However, you can't use your arcane focus if the material component is consumed or has a coin value. So when you look down the spells and you actually look at the list of them, if you look at protection from evil or good, that requires holy water, but it actually says that the holy water is consumed. So that means that you have to actually grab the holy water from your component pouch in order to be able to cast that spell. Um, another example might be chromatic orb. In that spell, it actually says that you need a diamond worth 50 gold pieces. In that case, because it has a coin value, you actually need to be able to grab that diamond to use it as in casting the spell. And so you can't use your arcane focus at that point. Okay, I hope that makes sense. The final rule to go over is that you need to have a free hand if your spell has a somatic gesture. So if it has a somatic component, i.e. you've got to wave your hand around, you need to have a free hand for that. If it has a material component, you need a free hand for that as well. However, this rule specifically states that if you need a somatic and material component to a spell, you can use the same hand for that. Okay, so that's a lot to take in. Tell you what, why don't you jump back if you got a bit confused and we'll meet back here. I'll go make a cup of tea and we'll be back here in a minute. Hey, welcome back. Okay, so now you understand the basics behind spellcasting and why we have to think about this freehand concept. Uh, let's talk about Rogar and how Rogar might use um, his spells. Rogar in this game, as I said, has three levels of uh, Paladin and he has one level of Warlock, which means he can cast spells from both classes. Let's deal with uh, Paladins first because it's the most complicated. And the thing that makes it complicated is that Rogar, as a Paladin, uses a shield. Okay, they're holy warriors, right? These guys, paladins, you know, they're, they're expected to wear big armour and wear shields and everything, you know. So they have a shield in one hand and they have their sword or their weapon in the other hand. Now, because it's understood that it's likely that a paladin will use a shield, what it actually says in the rules is that they can use their shield, providing it has their holy symbol on it somewhere, uh, they can use that as their arcane focus. Okay, this is cool because it means that if you have a material component... Um, associated with your spell, you don't need that free hand because you can use your shield as your arcane focus. Okay, let's look at some examples of spells you might cast as a paladin. Cure Wounds. Cure Wounds has a somatic component to the spell, but no material component. That means that 
that Paladin would need a free hand in order to make the somatic gestures. He'd have to sheath his weapon or something. Okay, Bless. Bless has somatic and material components, but the material components aren't consumed, and so the Paladin can use his shield to replace the holy water requirement. Because he's using his shield for a material component, he can also use it for the somatic component. So when casting Bless, the Paladin doesn't need a free hand. He can just use his shield. Okay, let's look at protection from good and evil. We looked at this earlier. It uses holy water just like Bless, but it's actually consumed. And it specifically says in the spell's description that the holy water is consumed. That means that, although it's a material component... The Paladin still needs a free hand in order to cast that spell, so he'd again have to sheath his weapon. Let's take a look at the Warlocks. The Warlocks are a lot simpler to think about the spells there because they can't use their shield as an arcane focus. So if Rogar is casting the Warlock spell, he always needs a free hand if there is a somatic or material component to that spell. It's that simple. So now that we've talked about the somatic and material components and the arcane focus, let's talk about what Rogar could actually do to mitigate some of these issues. The first thing that he could do is actually to stop using a shield. Um, I know that sounds flippant, but if he stops using a shield, he's always got a free hand. And that would mean that he could also use two hands for his longsword attacks, uh, it being a versatile weapon. Um, it would mean a drop in armor class of two from not using a shield. And I think there's also some paladin abilities that he would not be able to use um, because he's not got a shield equipped. But it would mean that we wouldn't have to think about any of the issues we've just discussed about having a free hand. He could also consider the Warcaster feat. Warcaster allows you to perform the somatic components of spells without having a free hand. However, there is still the issue of the material components for spells needing a free hand. As a Warlock, he could take Pact of the Blade Improved Pact Weapon. This allows you to use your weapon as an arcane focus. This would be great apart from, yet again, the somatic only and the consumed material component spells. Still got a problem there. If Rogar had a more generous DM, he may drop him a Ruby of the War Mage. This is an item that can be plugged into uh, any weapon and allow that weapon to be used as an arcane focus. Um, again, it still means there's an issue with somatic components and material components that are consumed, but it would be a step in the right direction. So that's a lot to take in, a lot of information there. I know that there are DMs out there that are going to ignore these rules completely, uh, and that's fair enough. Um, it does add an extra element of things to try and remember as you're playing the game. However, for me, it cheapens a little bit the Warcaster feat and also means that you might be wearing a shield a lot more uh, just to get that extra AC bump. So I would love to hear your feedback on uh, what we've just talked about. Was it too complicated? Um, did you not follow it? Uh, was it helpful? Um, are you more flexible with the rules that you use in your games? I've set up a subreddit, D&D Arcana. If you want to comment there, that would be absolutely fantastic, and I will do my level best to respond. Um, I look forward to hearing from you. But that's enough of that. Now this... Hello, and uh, welcome to the Neverwinter Woods on what is a very pleasant evening. So what are we doing in the Neverwinter Woods? Great question. Is it just a gimmick done in GarageBand to garner subscriptions and five-star reviews? <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly what it is, but we're doing it now, so stay with me. 
I was up here a couple of days ago taking my government-approved socially distanced exercise when I spotted this cave system at the top just over the ridge here. This cave is home to a tribe of goblins, but I've got special dispensation to go and wander around and visit with them. So we're going to take a look around and uh, see what they've done with the place. Um, I'm going to catch my breath at the top of the ridge, uh, head into the caves and I'll catch you there. Okay, let me just come around this corner. Right, we're in the entranceway here to the uh, cave system. Um, already it's very dark, it's tight, it's compact, um, and, uh, and it is extremely dark. As we know, goblins have uh, dark vision, so they won't need to light any of these areas. In fact, the only fires we're going to see in here are much deeper into the caves, which are there just for providing a bit of warmth and to cook on. Being dark helps the goblins with their love of traps, so I'm just going to quickly turn the torch on my iPhone on, uh, because I know there's one here somewhere. There it is. Uh, yeah, so right by my feet now, there's a, there's a, a tripwire. Um, it's attached to a rock just on the left, um, and the wire itself goes in through a gap in the, in the wall at the side. Um, and I know that this actually has been set up with a bunch of pots and pans all stacked up behind the wall here. Uh, if I were to trip over this wire, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but if I if I were, it would set off the trap and it would make quite a lot of noise. This is just this is not a trap that's going to damage anything. It's not going to hurt, um, but it will um, notify the sentries that are just a little bit further on here um, as to my presence. But um, as I say, they're all aware that I'm here today. Uh, so let's continue a bit further on. And this is the sentry room. Over there in the distance, I can just about make out the yellow eyes of, uh, of our two guards. Uh, that's Illick and Spud. Hi, guys. They're crouched behind a couple of rocks back there with uh, their short bows ready. So if they hear the trap go off, they can knock an arrow and be ready to fire as soon as anyone comes around the corner. Let's carry on. Okay, this is one of the main rooms of the cave. Uh, I've got a sleeping goblin here though. This is the cook and he's off duty. So I'm just going to go in a little bit further um, so I don't wake him. Okay, that should do it. What I like about this room is we have a raised ledge. Um, it's about maybe 10 feet high. Uh, there's a bunch of crates um, set aside, which are obviously used to get up there. Um, but what it means is if the goblins were defending this room, they would definitely be able to have maybe two or three goblins up on this ledge uh, with their short bows drawn, providing ranged cover. The goblins in the room itself have got enough room to dance around. Um, they've got a central fire here that they can use as a hazard. Goblin tactics will make sure that they engage the party and then using their nimble escape ability, they will be able to duck away, hide behind these barrels and crates, duck behind the fire and basically make this a very mobile battle in here. Goblins won't want to stay engaged with the adventurers. They won't want to be stood next to them. They'll want to move in, attack and then retreat. Always being on the move is one of their key strengths. Okay, just one more room left in this cave system, but there's a very interesting corridor in order to get there. Let's go take a look. Okay, so in this corridor, it just looks like a normal corridor coming from the one room into the other. Um, I can see up ahead we're, we're heading into a, another large cave, but right here in this corridor, it's quite tight, it's quite thin, um, but what you don't notice is that the stones here and the rubble that make up the floor on the right hand side has been loosened. 
it's been loosened quite extensively in fact if I just quickly move my foot here yep <laughs> you can see how loose the stones are there um, this is actually just another goblin trap and it's a very basic one but it's uh, it's quite good um, if you don't walk on the left hand side of the path here you're going to set on try and tread on this loose uh, ground on the right and you're going to drop off to what I understand to be quite a deep pit um, I'm going to go no closer <laughs> I'm just going to progress further down this cave but that's a nasty trap for a party as they walk in here So here it is, the final room in this cavern. Um, it's a great room. Yeah, tactically, it's brilliant. The goblins defending here have a lot of options. This is actually the lair of the hobgoblin that runs this tribe. I can't share his name, um, some issue with the NDA that I was asked to sign, but nevertheless, I've been granted permission to tell you all about it. So what are we looking at here? Well, as you can probably hear, there's an underground river running through here. It's cut quite deep into the ground, so uh, it's nothing that you're going to be able to climb through easily. Uh, you're going to have to either jump the gap or use the bridge that goes across the middle. And this is an excellent choke point that the goblins can use to pick off the adventurers as they try to cross. The hobgoblin himself will stand on the far side of this river. Um, it gives him an opportunity to stand there and bark orders um, where he's relatively protected by the goblins who stood around him. They will be using their short bows to pick off the ranged attackers from the party. Meanwhile, the uh, melee goblins will be on this near side of the bridge and they'll be engaging in the same tactics we talked about earlier. Very much stab, disengage and run away. Should any of the party break through into the other side, they'll have to cross over the bridge. They'll have to do that single file and that's where they can be met by the hobgoblin at the other end. Hobgoblins have excellent armour class and uh, they can be quite good tanks. But what makes them truly excellent is if they have a goblin stood next to them. So if one of the goblins who is using the short bow draws his short sword and runs up next to the hobgoblin to uh, face the party as they cross the bridge, the hobgoblin can use his martial advantage ability. This means that he does a lot of extra damage when he hits a party member because he has support from the goblin next to him. The choke point that is this bridge becomes quite a kill zone, with the hobgoblin and the goblins on the far side of the bridge picking off party members one by one. Well, that about wraps it up here. I hope you've enjoyed this quick tour around a goblin cave. Back to the studio. Okay, lovely stuff. And now this. You know, I originally set up D&D Arcana as a way of sharing my homebrew magic items. In fact, there may even be a few of you here who made it from the old D&D Arcana Instagram page where I posted these homebrew items. It was a fun thing to do, so I want to carry on doing some homebrew items and uh, sharing them here on this podcast. I've also created these as homebrew in D&D Beyond, so I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Today's magic item came from a requirement from my party that I'm running through the Sword Coast at the moment. Uh, it became evident that they are very light on healers, and so I thought they needed some help there. So what I created for them was a very low-level, uh, uncommon item uh, called the Delicious Apple. I'll read from the description on D&D Beyond. It's a shiny, delicious-looking apple. When you take a bite from the apple, you regain 1d4 hit points. 
The apple is large enough for four bites, after which only the core remains. If the core is eaten, you gain another 1d4 hit points, but the apple is destroyed. If any of the apple remains, it grows back to a complete apple once more at dawn. This is a simple, uncommon, wondrous item, but the party seems to get some peace from knowing that they have this in their pocket. As I say, I'll put the link to that in the show notes, and uh, another one next time. So I think that pretty much wraps up this very first episode of D&D Arcana. Thank you very much for joining me. I would very much enjoy hearing from you, so if you do have any comments, head over to the D&D Arcana subreddit, and uh, I will endeavour to reply to any comments left there. I'm going to ask you a favour. If you did enjoy the podcast and you think you might enjoy the next one, then uh, please go ahead and subscribe. I would be very grateful. Uh, And while for legal reasons I can't pop around your house with a basket of muffins, what I can offer you is a very hearty virtual high five. So there's a thing. Also, if you're tempted to leave any uh, positive reviews, that would also be great. The only final thing to say is that the music you heard in this episode was shamelessly pilfered from tabletopaudio.com. If you're a DM and you haven't checked them out, do so. They provide 10-minute audio clips of background music and ambient effects. Uh, It's a fantastic resource. I've been using them for years. Okay, well, that wraps it up. Thank you for joining me. See you next time.